And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 133. Y'all, it is October. Too much? No, not at all. It's October. (laughs) Y'all know what that means. Trick-or-treat candy? Girl, 31 nights of Halloween. But trick-or-treat candy? I mean, girl, I've been eating that for like two weeks. I mean, I've been eating your M&Ms for that long, too. Girl! That's why I've gone through a Sam size M&M. Oh, already. it's not me. Let me just tell y'all. It's not me. There's two people who live here, and it's been going boom, 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 boom. Because I mean them. Oh, damn. <laughs> y'all, 31 nights of Halloween means more content coming at you. Have y'all enjoyed it so far? Something every day. Some's on this main feed. Some's on Patreon. So what are y'all waiting for? And if you want something every day, you need to head on to Patreon. Like these people. Like these lovely people. Thank you, Lucy B. from Florida. Lisa W. from Ohio. Valerie D. from Pennsylvania. Bobby A. from Louisiana. Or as my mom would say, Louisiana. Okay. Tara P. from Pennsylvania. And Kimberly F. from Texas. Not only are they getting the 31 Nights of Halloween content, they're also getting the backlog of mm, lots of shit, including last year's 31 Nights of Halloween. So if you want all the shit that they're getting, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. We're almost a week into 31 Nights of Halloween already. It's crazy. But we're having so much fun. I mean, Facebook lives, kid stories, not so kid stories. And Will is doing an amazing job. He is putting in all the spooky dookie sounds. Question. Did you watch that series Ratchet? Ratchet? Ratcheted? Ratchet? What is it? The last one, Ratchet. Okay. Did you watch that? No, I'm on the first episode. Oh, I thought you watched it for some reason. Well, maybe it's Tiffany. Tiffany watched it. Maybe, yeah. Okay. Well, that's on my next to start, like as in in a couple of days. So is it good so far? Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Y'all tell us what y'all are watching for Halloween just to kind of get you in the mood. Also, if you want to know what gets us in the mood for Halloween, on Patreon we have a fucking 40-something minute video that we uh, got away from us. Yeah. Got away from us. It's just our top five movies for like, again, to get us in the mood for Halloween. And I, I don't know how it got that long, but it did. We literally both said five movies and why they're our favorite <laughs> with some honorable mentions. Yeah. Y'all y'all know us. We ramble. Well, and we don't have Will to edit us on videos, so we go rogue. Mm-hmm. By we, she means she, her. Usually, yes, but uh, these last few times, she's been a talker just like I have been. Uh, yeah, that's why I was 45 minutes. Yeah. Well, I'm going to continue talking because I've got a story to tell. All right. Please let it not be as, like, sad as last Monday's. Yeah, when I was picking this story, actually, Colby helped me pick this story. He said one, I was like, no, 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 that's too heavy. I can't can't do two super heavy stories in a row. I mean, it's still murder, so, I mean, hello, but that was a really fucking heavy story. Yes. For my story tonight... We are going to talk about the murder of Dorothy Jane Scott. So, Dorothy was born April 23rd, 1948. She grew up around Anaheim, California. In 1976, when Dorothy was around 28 years old, she gave birth to a son. His name was Sean. 
And as far as we know, Sean's father wasn't really in the picture. We know that he lived about 2,000 miles away in Missouri, but I don't really know much about him other than that. Being a single mother, Dorothy was very self-sufficient and was raising her son, but she ended up moving in with her aunt when she was about 32 years old with her son, and they lived in Stanton, California. But she worked in Anaheim, and she worked as a secretary in the back office at a place called Swingers Psych Shop and Custom John's Head Shop. Her parents would watch Sean for her while she went to work. So, just a little kind of background on what a psych shop is and a head shop. It's kind of what we would consider a raw shop now. Picture the late 70s. People are dabbling more in illicit drugs and all the things. And so head shops came from head, which in this context is someone who dabbles in drugs. So acid head example would be someone who took a lot of LSD. While Dorothy worked at the psych shop slash head shop, those words are kind of interchangeable. California is where they said more psych shops than head shop. But anyway, that's semantics. But while she worked there, she was pretty introverted, like straight-laced. She was, again, more just like a secretary there. But her dad actually was a co-owner of the shop. Dorothy had a really normal life. She would go to work, come back, pick her son up. They'd go home, cook dinner, watch cartoons. She'd play with Sean. You know, just do the normal family things. Until one day, she started getting phone calls. For months, she would get these phone calls from a man that she didn't know. The calls became more and more threatening, and she had no idea who they were from. Sometimes she would get calls that were basic stalkery type calls, like, I know where you live, I know where you work, I know your routine kind of thing. But then sometimes it would be like, okay, no, this person is really watching me because they would tell her what she had on that day, what time she left work, what she had for lunch, you know, like very specific details of her day that made her go, fuck, that no, this person is legit stalking me. One time she got a call and they told her, when I get you alone, I will cut you up into bits so no one will ever find you. And Dorothy had no idea who this was. She did tell her friends at one point that she felt like she recognized the voice, but she couldn't place it. One time she got one of her many calls, and they told her to look outside. When she looked outside, there was a dead rose laying on the windshield of her car. And can you just imagine, like, it seems so, like, okay, it's just a rose, dead rose. Well, first of all, it's dead. But second of all, like... That's how in her space he got without her even knowing. You know, that it's one thing to for them to tell you things like, hey, I saw you do this. I know this is where, but like for them to enter onto your property to put something on your car, that's scary. Yeah, that's a total violation. Dorothy is terrified at this point, and she truly has no idea who's making the calls. On May 28th of 1990, She's at a work meeting that went into like more after work hours. And while they're in the meeting, she looks over at one of her coworkers named Conrad and she's like, 
Carmen, are you feeling okay? And he's like, yeah, not, you know, not really. I just, I don't feel very well. And, you know, she's like, damn, you don't look good. Like, what's going on? And he has this red mark on his arm. And she's like, we, we need to get you to the doctor. He's like, I feel like I'm going to pass out. You know, he's just really not feeling well. And again, she kind of goes in mom mode. And she's like, no, 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 we need to get you taken care of. So Dorothy, Conrad, and one of their other coworkers, Pam, went to the emergency room. But before they got to the emergency room, they stopped off at Dorothy's parents' house so she could tell them, hey, you know, keep watching Sean. I'll be home later. Because again, it's 1980. What you going to do? Pick up the cell phone and call? No. While she was there, right before she left, she actually changed the scarf she was wearing from a black one to a red one. The three of them went to the emergency room at the UCI Medical Center, and the doctors found that Conrad actually had a black widow spider bite and they were like, okay, here's some antibiotics. Like you should be good. Here's medicine. Take it. You'll be fine. You can go home. Pam and Dorothy stayed with Conrad the whole time waiting in the waiting room and they were going to take him home. This is about 11 at night at this point, which I feel like, damn, that's a fast ER visit. You're in and out in three hours. Damn. Dorothy ran to the bathroom before they left. Who is she? Me. And she said, I'll go get the car. And Conrad's like, no, 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 I, I can go. And she's like, look, you are sick. Stay here. I'm going to go get the car. It's fine. After she leaves to get the car, Conrad and Pam are like, damn, she's taking a long time. Like, what the fuck? They waited about 20 minutes, which I mean, even Donna can walk to a car faster than that. The shade. I mean, thanks for thinking that, though. What, did you actually walk to the car and not send me to get it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, like I said, about 20 minutes later, they go out to the parking lot to be like, where the fuck is Dorothy? And when they get out to the parking lot, all of a sudden they see Dorothy's 1973 white Toyota station wagon hauling ass towards them. Total movie moment, this white car, high beams, I'm picturing in a parking garage. I don't know if it's actually a parking garage. Screeching tires, all the things. Because the high beams were on, they couldn't see who was in the car. They just know that was Dorothy's car. As soon as the car got to them, it took a sharp right out of the parking lot. And that was the last time that anyone saw anything of Dorothy alive. Wow. Pam and Conrad actually wait a little while before they call Dorothy's parents to see what the hell is going on. Yeah, like she might have just went home. Yeah, maybe she found an emergency or, you know, maybe she called her parents to say, hey, I'm about to take Pam and Conrad home, you know, and they were like, oh, my God, Sean's sick. You need to come home now. You know, you don't know. And I mean, I feel like when you if you found out your kid was in some sort of emergency, you forget about your friends that are waiting on you to pick them up at the door. Yeah, unless you almost run them down. I feel like that's a little true. Well, the parents tell Pam and Conrad, mm, she hasn't come to pick up Sean yet. And so her parents are the ones who eventually call the police and file a missing persons report. At about 4.30 the next morning, which is May 29th, Dorothy's car is actually found in Santa Ana, which is about 10 miles from the hospital they were at. And the car is on fire. So... Whatever happened to Dorothy, whoever kidnapped her, whatever happened, they had taken her car into this alley and set it on fire and then just left the scene. 
Well, how do we know that she didn't do that? We don't, but, I mean, I feel like it would have to be this elaborate plan to leave her current life. Yeah. I mean, I guess it could happen, but the odds... You know what, too? I forgot to mention that Dorothy, before she went missing, was so terrified by the phone calls that she was getting that she was looking into buying a gun and starting self-defense classes. Golly. So she was scared. Yeah. About a week after Dorothy disappeared and the car was found, Vera, Dorothy's mother, got a phone call. On the phone call, she was asked, Are you related to Dorothy Scott? She answered yes. And the caller said, I've got her. And hung up. Of course, police are like, you know, is that the same caller? Is it something, you know, odds are it's probably the one who had been calling her before she disappeared. Police do their digging and they're trying to figure out if they can trace who made the call to the parent's house. But it turned up nothing. So police asked the family to keep the details of her disappearance to themselves. Don't go to the media, all the things, because they want to be able to catch someone based on the details. Because there's literally nothing to go on at this point. And if the person who kidnapped her wanted the media attention and they're not getting it, maybe they would reach back out and they could trace the call. It might be longer, you know, whatever. Or... Just the opposite. They could be angry because they're not getting the attention and escalate if they just had her still. Yeah. So that's what's scary, too. It's like, how do you know which to do, you know? I mean, that's why people are hostage negotiators. About another week went by, and Dorothy's family was tired of waiting. They were like, nothing's coming of this. We're going to the media. The Orange County Register is ultimately who ran an article about... Dorothy's disappearance. After the story ran, Pat Riley, the editor of the newspaper, got a call. The caller said, I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. I killed her. And when I heard that, I was like, I knew it. Because in my head, I was thinking, if this guy was stalking her, and he saw that she took a male coworker to the emergency room after hours that they probably thought, allegedly, that was her boyfriend or that's who she was seeing, regardless of the fact that Pam was with him. I was about to say, there's another person. Doesn't matter. I mean, you're trying to put logic to the logical. And that that's probably what escalated it. I thought that when I was very first looking in the story is that I bet that, you know, that's what made him a kidnapper right then. Because it's such a bizarre time. Like, of all the times that she could be kidnapped, why right then? But then when the newspaper editor got that call, I was like, yep. While on the call, the man knew some details that, again, the person who kidnapped her was only the person that would know this. Because they knew that she was wearing a red scarf. So it had to either be Someone in the hospital, or Conrad, which it couldn't have been, you know, or her dad. Because if it, you know, if it's a man making these calls, like it had to have been someone that saw her from the time she left the her house to the emergency room and to her car. They even knew that Conrad was being treated for a spider bite, 
So my thinking was they kidnapped her and they were like, you're cheating on me. And she's like, no, I'm not. First of all, who are you? Or, you know, we're nothing. But if she played along, she was probably like, no, he's not my boyfriend. He's my friend. He had a spider bite, you know, and potentially told them the story so that they would believe like, okay, I'm not cheating on you, you know, just to kind of play into him to hopefully get away. When the parents heard that the caller said that he was her boyfriend, they were like, um, no. She had no time. She worked two jobs. She had a son. Like, she had no time for a boyfriend. So her family was like, this guy's clearly delusional. Months turned into years, and the stalker, every Wednesday for almost four years, would call Dorothy's parents home and tell her mother that he had killed Dorothy. Or some variation of that. But here's the thing. The calls only came in when Vera, her mom, was home alone. Not when her dad, Jacob, was there. So it's like whoever was stalking Dorothy now knew her parents' routine. Well, one day in April of 84, the unknown caller called the house. And this time, Jacob answered the phone. And the caller immediately hung up. And the calls stopped after that. So clearly, to me, you know, in my vast knowledge of killers, allegedly, this person got off talking and scaring women. And the minute her father answered the phone, he backed off. It's like, fuck you, dude. I mean, fuck you for everything, stalking and killing Dorothy, but also, fuck you. During the investigation, police looked at a number of persons of interest, but... The first thing that a lot of people think of in situations like this would be the father of Sean. But he had a rock salad alibi, was at home in Missouri. Like there was no question that it was not him. So they decide to look at Dorothy's work. Okay, who could it be? Could it be a customer? You know, someone who came into the shop and saw her every day and she maybe not even realized came in. But she worked in the back. She didn't deal with customers. So it couldn't be someone that came in the shop like every day or every couple of days that they would see her and really know her schedule. There was one guy that kept coming up. His name was Mike Butler. Mike Butler worked as a mechanic in the shop right next to her shop. And allegedly he was involved with the occult, which is... Very scary in the 80s. Hell, still very scary to people now because they don't understand it. But there was no evidence against Mike Butler. I mean, people thought that, okay, because he worked close, he was able to know her schedule. But there was no evidence. And police really never considered him a suspect. It was just someone who they were doing their due diligence, you know, following up on. Mike Butler ended up passing away in 2014. And again, from all accounts, it looks like it wasn't him. On August 6th, 1984, a construction worker is out on Santa Ana Canyon Road when he finds skeletal remains of dog bones buried on top of human bones. The human bones were charred from being burned, but they did find a turquoise ring and a watch, and the bones later were identified as Dorothy's remains. That's so sad. The watch found by her body 
had stopped at 12.30 a.m., which was about an hour after her car was seen leaving the hospital. Because of the like decomposition and the charred remains, an autopsy did no good in finding a cause of death. There's not a whole lot on what is with the dog. Like, is it the killer's pet? Is it like, did somebody just happen to bury... Like, it, there, there's, it's not very clear. I honestly know nothing about the dog, other than there was a dog buried on top of her. Maybe they did that so it would throw off scent if someone was looking. Maybe. Of course, finding her body brought her case back into the news. And after it was on the news, her family got one more call. On the last phone call, the killer simply said, Is Dorothy home? Wow. Mm-hmm. So to this day, Dorothy's case still is unsolved. Wow. Her son and her friends believe that Mike Butler is responsible for her death. But for everything that I can find from what police thought, it wasn't him. Now, I will say one of the blogs that I read was called The Disturbing Events That Led to the Unsolved Murder of Dorothy Jane Scott by Kirsten. And this article had like a whole follow-up from The Sun that talked about why he believed Mike Butler did it. According to her communications with The Sun, he says that Mike Butler was unstable, he lived in the mountains, and was involved with cult activity. He says that that helps explain the remains of the dog because allegedly a sacrifice. That just doesn't make sense to me. Well, in addition to Mike working right near Dorothy, you remember he's the mechanic that worked at a shop right next to her. Mike's sister worked with Dorothy. So, I mean, he could be hearing stories about her, you know, just from the sister. He could know her schedule a little more because, I mean, he could even play it off like, hey, sis, you working? And she's like, no, Dorothy's working today. You know what I mean? There's ways in which he could get the schedule. But again... Law enforcement still says that he was never a suspect and there's no evidence against him. So it feels a little bit like Mike is an easy scapegoat because he was different from yep. them. Yep. So I, I truly don't think Mike did I it. don't either. It just doesn't fit for me. Like, okay, so he lived in the mountains and he was into different practices. Okay. Like, okay, did he constantly, like, come over and try to start up conversations with her? And I feel like if he, that was the case, she would have recognized his voice yeah. more. Like, she would have, if he came to the shop as much as it would have to be for him to have that obsession with, I don't know. I think so, too. So, this year marked the 40th anniversary of her murder, and there is still no evidence and no sight of a suspect. Wow. And so her son still lives knowing that his mom was murdered and has no answers. That's so sad. It could have been like a delivery person because they would go to the back. For her to sign, yeah. Uh-huh. It's just so interesting that she told some of her friends that she recognized the voice. So it was someone. She just couldn't put her finger on it. Yeah. I mean, obviously it was somebody, but you get the point. Yeah. That's why I was like thinking a delivery person, someone that she comes in contact with that 
she could have been really nice to or mm-hmm. whatever, but she doesn't give it another thought. You know, he's just like a faceless person. Yep, stamp, you did it. Sign off, give you your things, you know, and go. And that's why she couldn't really recognize the voice because they don't really talk that much. It's just kind of, you know. Right, sign here. Yeah. Have a good day. And then when this person saw her take Conrad to the emergency room, it was like it flipped a switch. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he lived out every fantasy in that short amount of time, oh, you know. Yeah. I will say, though, her watch breaking, I hope that means that that's right around the time she passed. Because, I mean, I just hope that she didn't suffer. That long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not as heavy as last week, but not not heavy. Yeah. Oh, unsolved ones are so hard. Because, and especially like this, it's like, you want this to be an on the case with Paula's on because it's like totally one of those cases like, and 40 years later, like I could just hear her voice, police got a lead, mm-hmm. but it's like, no, there's nothing. Yeah. And then her remains are charred. So even new DNA technology and all of that, shit's ruined. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't even technically know how she died. Yeah. I mean, other than obvi foul play, but like asphyxiation, stabbing, gunshot wound, we don't know. Well, mine's definitely not as heavy as last week, so. Okay, good. Yeah. We're going to keep it light and murdery. Yes. Okay. All right. For the first main episode of the Halloween season, I thought I needed to go big and go home. And go home. You know, because I got to leave after this. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I was going to say, I mean, you can stay, but you're allergic to my dog, and then you're gonna, you may be comfortable, blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, y'all, she's allergic to my dog. Yes. She has like three seats she can sit in in the whole house. One of them being the fucking hearth. I was going to say, a hearth. <laughs> but she fucking is so comfortable there, and yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. Y- y'all know. Like, I like my, I like things hard, okay? <laughs> what can I say? All right, so I was like, again, have to tackle a really big... Okay, get out of dirty mind, Donna. All right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I, like, didn't even notice. I was like, what is she talking... Oh. (laughs) All right, moving right along. We are traveling to Wilder, Kentucky, to a building that is known as one of the most haunted locations in America. Bobby Mackey's Music World. Carrie has no clue. Everyone else is like, oh, okay. She's not wrong. (laughs) You know how I always start off by saying that people's dream homes turn into their worst nightmares? Mm -hmm. Well, Bobby Mackey had a dream of becoming a country music superstar. He recalls his mama getting him to sing a song in the bathtub one night when he was four, and he said he hasn't stopped singing since. He spent some time touring, playing in bars in different nearby towns, and had some nationwide success. But something was missing. Talent? No, he's, he is talent. <laughs> I said he is talent. He is talent. <laughs> and his friends agreed that he was destined for something more. And they urged him to open up his own bar so he could perform whenever he wanted and to help other artists like himself to find and showcase their voice. Kind of like a, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. 
And Bobby kept mulling it over, and he decided to go for it. He knew the perfect place for his new country nightclub, because he used to pass it every day in 1966 while he was working on the railroad. He would stare at that building and try to picture the inside of it. And now looking back on those days of daydreaming about the interior and what he could do with it, he feels like it was a premonition of sorts. He felt drawn to that building. And there wasn't a second thought in his mind when he decided to open up a bar. It had to be there, that exact location, his dream building. But what he didn't know Uh is that it would become a nightmare. Yeah, I had to do it, right? Bobby's first employee was a 20-year-old guy named Carl Lawson. Carl approached Bobby and told him that he was always interested in working at that place and wanted to help any way he could. So Bobby told him, you know, pick up a paintbrush, clean up messes, make yourself useful, and you can stick around, something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And Carl did, and he actually became the living caretaker when the bar opened. Carl knew a lot about the history of the land and the building that was there before this one. And Carl was a talker. Must have been a Leo. And he told all the stories he knew. But Bobby really didn't pay him any mind on the history. Bobby kept his mind focused on the future of the bar, the future of his family, the future of his career. He opened the doors of Bobby Mackey's Music World in September of 1978. That name sounds like you, it's a place you go buy instruments. Yeah. Not a bar. One night shortly after opening, Carl and Bobby were sitting around just kind of bullshitting. And Carl kind of muttered about weird things afoot at the bar. And Bobby, you know, was like, okay, tell me about it. Like, you're twisting my arm. Tell me about it. Because, you know, Carl wanted him to be like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. And so Bobby was like, fine, just tell me. And Carl told him that he felt like he was being watched and he could hear footsteps downstairs when he knew everyone was gone and he had locked up. But Bobby dismissed everything and he told Carl not to say a word to anyone because Bobby didn't believe in the supernatural and he was damn sure that if anyone else found out about it, All the money he just sank in to this place would fail because people would be scared to come inside. Mm -hmm. But Bobby should have paid attention to those history lessons Carl was giving him because that mistake would come back to haunt him. I see what you did there. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the history. In 1850, this location was a site for a large slaughterhouse and like a meatpacking facility. And it served northwestern Kentucky and Cincinnati, Ohio, which was really close by. And something to note, which will definitely come up later, the lowest part of the building, there was this well that was dug and it was used for the blood and the guts and Mm. like just all the waste from the animals, you know, to go down. And it was connected to the Licking River. (gasps) And yeah, so the story goes that sometimes the Licking River would be red from all of the blood and stuff. Gross. Mm-hmm. Yuck. It was 1850, you know? True. But still, ugh. After 40 years of operation, the slaughterhouse closed in 1890. And even in the 1890s, 
satanic cults were like still like the woo hoo hoo And so there's speculation that, you know, ooh, an empty place. And I don't know how they know. Like there wasn't a Yelp or like, <laughs> you know, VRBO that's like, hey, empty slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. Like how do they know that? I don't know. Anyway, but they say that satanic cults would gather in the building around the well because they could easily discard their sacrifices. I mean, now, if I was the head of that cult, that would be something I would think about because I'd be like, I don't have to carry all that shit. And nobody trying to clean up. Right. I'm like, that's actually genius. But I don't believe that. Now, if that wasn't bloody enough for you, a murder that happened in 1896 is tied to this place as well because of the well. Pearl Bryan was a cattle rancher's daughter from Greencastle, Indiana. She was the youngest of 12, and most of her friends said that she was the sweetest thing ever. Well, Pearl met a dental student from the East Coast named Scott Jackson, and he was so different than what she was used to. And so she was smitten right away. And she was 22 at the time. So back in the day, I mean, still now, but not as bad. Mm-hmm. Basically, her chances of getting a man was slim to none at 22. I feel you, girl. I'm 35. I feel you. The pool is getting smaller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like back then, 22 is like what 35, 40 is now. Right. So she was smitten, but she also saw him as her like one chance at continued social acceptance. And I mean, he a dental student. So mm-hmm. I mean, get it, girl. Mm-hmm. Carrie's like, I mean, you could get braces. I'm thinking like teeth cleaning. Right. All the teeth cleanings you want. (laughs) Sign me up. Well, Pearl soon found out that she was pregnant. And at that point, she felt like she had no choice but to, quote unquote, fix the situation. Because back then, it would have disgraced her family. And then that slim chance of her finding a hubby would go to no chance, mm-hmm. and Scott would get off scot-free. Eh. See what you did there, but so true. Mm-hmm. Ugh, so fucking true. Yep. But Scott said, you know what? I will help you get a secret abortion. So in January of 1896, she told her family that she was going to visit friends in Indianapolis, but she met up with Scott in Cincinnati, and that's where they were going to find their quote-unquote, resolution to this problem. But little did Pearl know, they were not going to a doctor. Because, you know, Scott was learning to become one. Mm. Oh, no. Yeah. Not not the same. Mm -mm. But him and his roommate, Alonzo Walling, they performed the abortion. Oh, no. With dental tools. Oh, no. Mm Mm-hmm. But it didn't work out. Imagine that. And a couple of days later, Pearl Bryan's headless body (gasps) was found two miles away from where Bobby Mackey's is now. So kind of close to the slaughterhouse. Mm -hmm. She was found with multiple wounds across her back and her hands. And the coroner said that she was five months pregnant at the time. (gasps) And she was alive during the decapitation. What? Yes. They identified her by a tag in her shoe. It was a custom-made shoe, and it was from Greencastle, Indiana, where she's from. 
Wow. Mm-hmm. What, in the forensic files? Yes. So Pearl's head was never found, but speculation abounded because people said they threw it down the well at the slaughterhouse. It was close, and they're in a cult. Okay, because they would know, hey, there's an abandoned slaughterhouse two miles from here in this town where we don't live, and, like, they'd fucking know that. Right. They were rumored to be in a cult. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. You never know. Well, it's also rumored that they were offered life in prison other than the death penalty, other than being hanged, if they would tell the location of Pearl's head. But they refused, allegedly, because they were terrified that they would anger Satan Okay, if they exposed the site that they did their sacrifices to him at. Meanwhile, they probably never admitted anything. And so... No, they did. Oh, JK. Yeah, no, they did. And then they like, turned on each other and all kinds of stuff. Alonzo Walling and Scott Jackson became the last two people hanged in Campbell County on March 21st, 1897. It actually took like five minutes for them to die because like when they first fell, Mm -hmm. their necks didn't break and they were like there. And I'm like, you know what? You fucking cut her head off. While she was alive? While she was alive. Karma's a bitch. Yep. I just have to add this gross and sad detail And trigger warning, it's about her child. But on WCPO.com, which is ABC 9 Cincinnati, this guy, Andrew Young, said that Pearl's fetus was intact. It was extracted, pickled, and put on display at a local pharmacy. What? I don't know, but I was like, "Mm -hmm." why did it have to say pickled? The slaughterhouse was demolished soon after that, and it sat empty. Like, the lot was just there. But then a new building was built in the 1920s, and it housed all the illegal good good at the time. A casino and a speakeasy because it was during Prohibition. Mm-hmm. But when Prohibition ended, a guy named Buck Brady bought the building, and he transformed it into a nightclub called the Primrose Club. And he was able to do this with all the money he made during Prohibition, being a bootlegger. Mm -hmm. Because that is the dumbest shit known to man. Right? I don't understand how there are still dry counties in the United States. Like, it makes no fucking sense. None. Well, Buck was determined to make a profit. So he housed an underground casino as well in this building. And he really hoped... His, like, desolate location, because it's a smaller town. Like, Wilder is a small town, really close to Cincinnati, but on the outskirts. And where this lot is, it's located on Route 66, so it's an easy route to get there. So it's like, oh, you're driving down Route 60. I know. You don't say them two different ways? I do, but it was just funny that you literally did it differently in the same sentence. Yeah. So it made me kind of giggle. Yeah. Sorry, she looked at me all weird, but... I don't know. Do y'all do that? Because oh, I it's, say it's two different things. Oh, it's Route 66 and a Route 44 drink. Yeah. 100. <laughs> yeah. So it was a good location, but he's just hoping to stay low and not, you know, 
be like, oh, the Cleveland Four, which was the Cincinnati mob, he just didn't want to be on their radar. Yeah. However, in 1946, Red Masterson was sent by the Cleveland Four to get Buck to either let them buy him out of the club or to give them some of the profits. They're like, hey, you're taking away some of our profits, so we either want to buy you out and you, you know, like, whatever, or give us some money. I'd be like, give me the money because I ain't having anything to do with this shit. Right? I watched Ozarks. <laughs> I think it's just one, huh? I watched Ozark. <laughs> <laughs> well, Buck refused. And then the men tussled, but... Buck was able to get the shotgun, and he shot Red Masterson in the leg. Scandalous, I know. Well, then, Buck was arrested for disturbance of the peace and, I believe, attempted murder. But Red Masterson refused to name him at trial. However, when Buck was free, the Cleveland Four made sure he knew, hey, best keep moving on Mm -hmm. if you want to maintain your life and being free. And so Buck took off and moved to Florida, and he later died by suicide in Mm. 1965. Well, so Buck left the club to the mob. He was just like, got to go, bye. I don't think for any money this time because they were like, we tried to do it Mm -hmm. this way. Now you're doing it our way for sure. Well, they renamed the club the Latin Quarter. And it kind of became a seedy kind of place, had a lot of gambling, a lot of prostitution. The Latin Quarter and the cops, they just had a really bad, a really bad relationship because, again, they were doing gambling, you know, like it was an underground kind of casino thing. And so the cops would come in all the time and just do like some checks Mm -hmm. and they would take sledgehammers to the wall. (gasps) To confiscate the slots and stuff. But they would just put them right back in, you know, and later on they'd come right back. You know, it was just that kind of situation. So, I mean, can you imagine like the hostility Mm -hmm. and all of that going on in that club right then? I mean, did they have like warrants and shit or were they just like, I don't know. I have no idea. One story that's tied to this era of the club is the story of Johanna. And Johanna was supposedly the daughter of the owner of the Latin Quarter. Well, she fell in love with a young country singer named Robert Randall. She became pregnant and suddenly Randall disappeared, as in taken care of, if you will. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they weren't married and like, you ruined my daughter kind of thing. You know what I mean? Which he didn't, but... Right. Because they're not ruined, but whatever. Right. Well, Johanna was heartbroken because now she's pregnant and has no support system, she feels like, because the one person she loved... And meanwhile, now that baby is going to grow up without a fucking father. Right? Well. Uh-oh. Well. She was very distraught, and she decided that she was going to get revenge and poison her father. (gasps) But then she also died by suicide by poisoning herself in her dressing room, which is in the basement by the well. And just to note, so 
her lover, his name was Robert Randall, okay? Mm-hmm. Bobby Mackey's full name is Robert Randall Mackey. Whoa. And so a lot of people say that she is still there because, like, she thinks that he is her long-lost love, country singer, same mm-hmm. name. kind, of, And I think his last name was, like, super close to or something. So I don't even know. But I'm just saying. It's just one of those things. Also, this is what fucking happens when you don't have comprehensive sex education and provide people with free contraceptives. Mm-hmm. And then have a double standard for men and women as it relates to sex. Right. And or reproduction. Right. Steps off soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, in 1961, the Latin Quarter closed, and there was a few other businesses that came into the building after, and one of the last places, its official name was the Hard Rock Cafe, no relation to the like famous Hard Rock Cafe, but it was also known as the Bloody Bucket, because, oh. yeah, because there was like a series of shootings that <gasps> happened in 1977. Oh, shit. And so it closed after that. It was like, uh, no one coming because, uh, you know, bloody bucket and all. Yeah. And so now we're back up to Bobby Mackey. And so we see that that history, super bloody. Buckets of it, in fact. Oh, there you go. So now let's talk about some ghostly happenings. Carl always tried to tell Bobby about the spooky shenanigans, but Bobby refused to believe it. Again, he only cared about his music and his family, and not in an asshole way. He just, like, that's what he was focused on. Everything else just wasn't important to him. It didn't affect him, and so he was okay. Mm -hmm. However, his wife Janet, she did believe Carl, and she actually sensed a feeling of malice in that building. And one time she was even physically touched and she was completely alone in the building. The next thing she knew, she just felt some unseen force grabbing her by the waist and pushing her down a flight of stairs. Oh, shit. Yeah. And so it wasn't long after that incident, Janet refused to be in the bar alone ever again. But Carl and Janet are not the only ones who have seen or felt things. Other employees have caught glimpses of shadows or weird lights. They hear the phantom sounds and the same sensations that Carl had of being watched or followed. But still, everything was kept under wraps until a night in 1989 when one of Bobby's friends, who was a writer, named Doug Hensley, he was hanging around the bar and Bobby kind of mentioned a few stories that Carl had told him And Doug was, like, super excited about it. Got, like, a ghost boner from this, you know? And so he's like, I got to get the deets from Carl. But Carl wouldn't tell him anything because he was loyal to Bobby. And Bobby told him, don't say a fucking word. Meanwhile, Bobby's blabbing his fucking mouth. Mm Mm-hmm. But finally, Bobby just kind of shrugged and was like, go ahead. Tell him. It's fine. Well, Doug actually got other people to tell their stories, too, And so he wrote a book, and he ended up writing, like, several books about Bob Mackey's. Some of the strange things include the jukebox. It will power on all of a sudden, 
And then it'll play some old music that's, you know, from the 1930s or 40s, and they're not in the jukebox. The song, The Anniversary Waltz, it's one that's been heard numerous times by different people. And also the jukebox will play when it isn't even plugged in. Oh, damn. Some other things that have been happening, chairs have been rearranged while no one else was in the room. And of course, sudden drops in temperature, different spots, different rooms, all the things. Some people have heard their names called, but when they turn and look, there's no one. But I feel like, look, that happens at my fucking house. I'm like, wait, what was that? Though Marley might be throwing her voice or some shit. I don't know. She'll certainly throw you a fucking side eye. That's a damn truth. One night when Rich Lawson was in the bar, he went to the bathroom to wash his hands at the sink. And all of a sudden, the metal garbage can to his left just suddenly slammed itself backwards into the wall. And he was like, whoa, at the fucking loud impact. So it wasn't just like, oh, maybe it teeter-tottered or whatever. Like, no, it slammed itself against the wall. And it's metal. Yes. If it actually did that. (laughs) Well, he turned around and when he did, he saw a man with a handlebar mustache. He was standing there and he started to repeat like a phrase over and over. And while he was repeating that phrase, the bathroom got like hotter and hotter and where he was like, it's, it's a fucking sauna in here right now. And all of a sudden everything was okay. And like, cause he was like, I got to get out of here. And when he went to the door, everything was fine. Another incident in the men's bathroom is when J.R. Costigan, who was a regular, was washing his hands. Thank God. These men are doing it right. Wash your fucking hands, people. Well, this might be why guys don't wash their hands, because when they do, shit happens. Well, he looked into a mirror and saw a shadow figure, and he said it was complete with a cowboy hat. And all of a sudden, it lunged at him, and he felt it punching and kicking and just beating him until he fainted. Well, when he woke up, he went straight to Bobby and was like, you have to get control of your fucking spirits. Like, they're evil. Well, Bobby laughed. He was like, okay, okay. Because, again, Bobby does not believe that this place is haunted. He's like, okay, y'all have your your experiences, but, like, he doesn't. It's just one of those things. He's you. He's you. I mean, I'm cool with not having experiences. (laughs) I mean, he is, too. However... Again, he just saw this guy was being funny. Like, okay, I'll get him under check. Like, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. You know? Well, he found out he wasn't joking when he got notified that he was being sued for negligence and allowing (gasps) ghosts to operate without any warnings to patrons. What? Yep. The judge threw out the case because, duh. But Bobby's lawyer was like, you know what? This is a good lesson. So put up a warning sign. And so he did on the front entrance. And it says, warning to our patrons. This establishment is purported to be haunted. Management is not responsible and cannot be held liable for any actions of any ghost or spirits on this premise. Shit. Man, we live in a litigious fucking society. Right? 
like he could stop his motherfucking ghost. <laughs> and one, pe- like, obviously you knew that it was haunted. And I mean, were you injured? No. <laughs> but did you die? <laughs> right. Oh, gosh. Another thing is that when people see photos of Pearl Bryan, they match up with their descriptions that they've, like, said, hey, I see this headless ghost in this turn-of-the-century dress. <laughs> Hold on. Did I say turn-of-the-century? No. <laughs> oh, God. They-, <laughs> they see pictures of her and then know that's her headless ghost. <laughs> oh, I get it. I get it. <laughs> Carrie is about to pee herself. <laughs> oh my god! How they see- <laughs> you don't think people could tell with your head cut off that that's you? <laughs> I could tell. Oh that my god! <laughs> what she think? All five just look the same. <sighs> you don't think they could tell the difference of me and you? Yes, but like. I mean, it's possible, but like, or like, oh yeah, that's a dress, and because like, what are her, the odds her, of her? But like, if she had her hands like this, and it's like, oh, that's how, like, whatever. I don't know. Okay. I just feel like yes, I get why you laugh so hard, <laughs> but also take me, you, and anyone else on the freaking planet. If you saw them without their head, and you saw a picture, I feel like you would be like. Oh, that's that. If they're in the same clothes. Why would she be in the same? What are the odds of her being in the same clothes, dead, as she was in that picture? Well, here's another one. Also, pictures of Buck Brady people see, and they say that, hey, that matches the description of the ghost I saw. Buck but had he a has head. A, he has a head, I know. I am just saying, a person is more than their head. Well, tell that to the forensic files that can't identify somebody without a head and fingerprints. <laughs> there was this incident in the mid-1990s where a car was going down the road, lost control, and smashed into a telephone pole right outside of the club. And it's, like, super close to the front door. Well, the person was killed instantly. Oh. But Larry Hornsby was the first policeman on the scene, And he was just kind of assessing the situation, and he knew that the person was already deceased. And he said that this woman, who was dressed in like an evening gown, came out of the club and gave him a tablecloth that he could cover the body with. He turned around to, you know, like, be like, thanks, because, you know, he was just kind of like, thanks, and like, you know, in the zone, Turned around, and she wasn't there, but he's like, oh, okay. Because, again, it's super close to the door. Yeah. So, it's like, well, you know. Somebody could have seen the wreck and been like, oh, shit. Right. And it's not going to take her 10 years to walk back. It's literally a few steps. And so, she was gone. However, he called asking about her or, like, had contacted the club, and Bobby Mackey was like, no one was at the club that day. It's locked. Like, I would know if someone was at the club because we have alarms. And no one would be wearing an evening gown. Hmm. And so, it's like, 
it was a ghost that helped him. Yeah. Johanna is still a big presence in the club. People have reported smelling her rose perfume, which was her signature scent. And Carl Lawson, he claimed to find her journal. And that's where he read about her falling in love with the guy and all of that. Also, he would see her constantly. And again, she was always accompanied by her rose perfume. Well, soon other employees and visitors would encounter her as well. And they said that she would tug on clothes. There was just like some faint touching, you know, like just delicate. And sometimes if they would just catch a glimpse of her, but it was like a beautiful but sad face. And it would be staring out of the mirror in her dressing room. And then other people during some of the ghost tours that they have, they said like that they were not reflected in the mirror when they stood in front of it. Kind of like something was inside the mirror. You know, like mm-hmm. it was blocking it from reflecting. The main hotspot people talk about is the basement where the well is, that slaughterhouse drain basically. And it's said to be a portal to hell. Okay. Yeah. Well... There's been so many reports of people who have been pushed or pulled by unseen forces. I mean, you know. Well, and there's also some stories of a quote-unquote demonic presence with glowing eyes that stays in the basement. And back to old Carl Lawson for a moment, his mental health had kind of taken a turn for the worse. And he started talking to himself and He was experiencing bouts of insomnia, and later when he was interviewed, he said that the demons were attacking him in his dreams, and he claimed to be attacked by several of the spirits and then was actually possessed by some as well, and possessed to the point where he needed an exorcism, and that happened August 8th, 1991. Okay, your birthday. Mm Mm-hmm. Little Don was eating cake and ice cream while he was like, be healed. He wouldn't. Yeah, he wouldn't. They did get that on tape so you can hear it and Mm -mm. stuff. But, you know, a lot of people have been there. Like a lot of ghost adventures have been there. Paranormal lockdown, all of that. But there's this one group and it's called the Gatekeeper Paranormal Group. And they're the ones who do the tours at Bobby Mackey's and everything. They have an EVP of a female voice, and it's kind of like a whisper and in a southern accent, and it says, she does not like all the people in here. What? Mm -hmm. They're like, wow, this is a whole sentence. It's not just, you know, one word where you're like, wait, what did they say? Mama? Llama? Comma? Comma chameleon? And speaking of people who've been there, I watched an episode of Portal to Hell about Bob Mackey's. And they had some experiences for sure. Like the psychic they had, she was doing some automatic writing. And when she was writing, she was just like, oh, my God, he is telling me to slap the woman in front of me, which was Katrina. And he called her a whore or something. Yeah. Just like, you know, a fucking incel bully. Also, Laura, who is part of the Gatekeepers Paranormal Group, she Again, runs the tours there. She was talking to Jack, and they were down in the basement by the well. And she said that she was giving this guy a tour one time, and he just got in the well, 
pulled out a Ouija board. What? And started to cut himself with a razor blade and like have the blood on the Ouija board. And it was like, whoa, you know, kind of like an offering and stuff. And so, wait, he had the Ouija board on him or he pulled it out the well? On him. Okay. Either way, what the what? Yeah. So it's like, even if the people like Laura and Bobby Mackey or any of them, they're not inviting evil in, people like this dude mm-hmm. is doing some kind of freaking blood sacrifice thing going on, you know? Well, while Jack's doing a tour with Laura, Katrina interviewed a guy named Dan Smith who used to work at Bobby Mackey's, but he will not go back anymore. He was interested in the supernatural and, you know, trying to make a connection. And the more he got into it, he's like, this is all true. Like, holy shit. I believe in ghosts. Yeah. Well, soon he made contact with the spirit of a little boy. He heard a young child's voice and he grew really concerned because he's like, there's this innocent little spirit trapped with these evil, dark spirits. No, it isn't. Well, Dan crossed paths with Bishop James Long, and he had done some stuff already at, like, some exorcism, like the exorcism and yeah, all the things. So he was telling James Long, like, you know, I made contact with this little boy and all of that. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. There is no child spirit there. Like, there's no child spirit there. What you have is a demon attachment. Like, they're trying to get on you. Like, you know, again, yeah. we know. Like, just how you were like, no, you weren't. It wasn't a little boy. Yeah. Because we we know their tricks now. So he told Dan, like, you need to stop before you get possessed. Because it's, it's right now, like, kind of wearing you down. Seeing where your weakness is to kind of creep in. And then you get possessed. So... The last time Dan was in Bobby Mackey's, he was on a break. So he was by the bar and a woman was like, did you see that? And so he turned to look and what he saw was a man sitting at a table, but his eyes were glowing white. And so freaked him out, you know. Well, later that night, things started happening in his house. Oh, uh -uh. Mm uh-uh. And he said he heard footsteps and it was like following him around the house and everything. But then when he got into bed, he heard them coming towards his bed. Mm-mm. And then he felt something sit, like, on his bed. Fuck that. Yeah. So he was like, no. Evil followed me home. So he got with the bishop again and was like, cleanse me, whatever, and I'm never going back to Bob Mackey's. And so, like, she interviewed him off-site at a different place he even said that even just thinking about the interview and like contemplating should he do it should he not he started having really dark thoughts he started to think about suicide and everything but he was like no like this needs to get out like this is my story i need to tell it and also again to warn like don't let your guard down yeah but what happened after the show is what I was like, oh, shit. So when they got there, they were told the new activity had started where it followed people home. Like, other people were saying shit, too. Like, some weird shit was going on after I came 
to the bar. So Jack and Katrina, they both had on protection from that bishop. He was, you know, like, here's some bracelets, whatever. And Jack is like, yeah, I don't want to take anything home. How you say, like, a little a mm-hmm. ghost riding on your shoulder, they didn't want it. Well, it didn't matter. Three days after filming, they both randomly ended up in the ER separately. And they were both contacted by friends who were mediums who said that they felt like they needed to reach out and cleanse them. And again, both of them had this interaction with different mediums and again, separately. Like one got DM'd on Instagram, one, you know, like had a text message or whatever. And like they didn't know they were working on anything, you know, like they had no idea. But it was like all right along there, you know. Some people believe that the Licking River, because it has a northern current, and that's pretty rare. Uh, you, can you see my face? I was like, <laughs> wait, what? Yeah. They're like, spirits can't cross flowing water. Again, I, I don't know. Some people believe this. And so they think that's what's keeping the dark energy trapped in Bobby Mackey's because it can't cross over onto like a different property or whatever. I don't know. But what I do know is that there's always two sides to a story. And Johanna might have never existed. Hmm. Or at least not in the way they claimed. Because a lot of people say that, you know, the mob boss, the guy who owned the club, that was her dad. But they also say that she danced in the club. Well, no, mob boss is going to be like, oh, yeah, my daughter's going to dance in this club. Like, they keep it separate, you know? Like, you got your business and you got your family. Your family's safe. They're not mixed. Yes. You know? And so it's like, "Mm, I don't think so. But Johanna could have been a dancer there. He could have been involved with her, you know? And she could have liked that guy. And he was like, no, bitch. Yeah. And whatever, but, and then it just kind of turned into like, oh, that was his daughter, whatever. I don't know, but that doesn't add up. And there's no proof that Pearl has anything to do with Bobby Mackey's either, because it's just alleged. That her head ended up there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was close, but I mean, not, she wasn't tied to that place at all. Yeah. It's not like, oh, she's from that town and no. But everyone who goes there has an experience, you know, and obviously some people bring stuff home with them. And another thing is that it really didn't become a nightmare for Bobby Mackey because he makes money off of the ghost Mm -hmm. tours and stuff now. It just went with the story, so I said it was a nightmare. But, (laughs) like, he doesn't really believe in it still, but he's like, people started... Come in and they're like, yeah, you can go down to the basement. Yeah, look around. And then it was like more people. And he's like, hmm, okay. Yep, but pay some money, you know? Oh, he because he's the ultimate entrepreneur. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Got his hustle and flow. Right. Like, why the fuck should he care? Like, if he doesn't believe in it, he's still getting to sing. He's still getting money. True. And, you know, it's all, it's all there. Well, I'll be damned. But now I want to go. I don't if shit's following you home. If some shit that the bishop gave those two didn't work, and you know our track record with health. True. We would end up in the hospital with some serious shit. 
Very true. But maybe they're really healthy. And so it was like crazy. Maybe we would go there. It'd do whatever. But it'd have the opposite effect. And we wouldn't go into the hospital or have to go to, you know, 20 doctors in a year. Yeah. No, that wouldn't happen for us. (laughs) That's not how our lives work. Mm -mm. Y'all let us know if y'all would go. Because I don't want to. I mean, I want to. You can road trip it by yourself. I can't road trip by myself. Who's going to open my snacks for me while I'm driving? Okay, I'll go with you, but I ain't going in. Just kidding. (laughs) Whatever. She'd be like, okay, I'm going in. Right. But I'm not going to like it. (laughs) And if I get an attachment, you're hiring somebody to fix Uh it. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't know why I sound so gruff and... (laughs) And what do y'all think about Dorothy? Yeah, like, who did that? I don't know. I liked the stories this week. Me too. Hated that yours was unsolved. I know, I know. And I, it's it's weird to say, like, liked the story, but you get the point. Yeah. Y'all, we are super excited about these 31 Nights of Halloween, and we hope that y'all are loving everything thus far. Stay tuned for more content coming your way. And remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get scared. scared.